Mark 6, uh, Jesus uh, rejected at Nazareth in the first few verses. Verse 7, he sends out the 12 authority, power, healing, casting out demons. Come to verse 14. Now Herod heard of him, and his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. Therefore, these powers are at work in him. Uh, a guilty conscience will torture you to death. And that's what's uh, going on with Herod is he has put John the Baptist to death. And we're going to see in the verses that unfold in front of us that he wasn't entirely willing in don't take that the wrong way. He's as guilty as sin, uh, but he wasn't entirely willing that that should happen. Uh, he had some degree of respect for John the Baptist, his ministry, uh, the things that were going on. Um, again, guilty as sin in, in uh, you know, sort of a modern vernacular, but he, uh, his guilty conscience is uh, very evident and, uh, you know, sometimes you'll see that in yourself and in other people where, um, you know, as much as they're running away from the circumstance, uh, the guilt is ever present with them. And uh, I've experienced it for yourself. <laughs> you know, cut loose, let it go, confess, uh, let the chips fall, just, just you know why live that way why why be in that state of existence here he's got that john's dead jesus is ministering jesus is john the baptist resurrected you know he's got spooky ghost stories uh haunting him uh because of what he's done and then you know here uh 15 sort of gives a, a broader explanation others said it is elijah and others it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. Now, um, uh, those two things uh, come, three things really, but it's two segments. Uh, the thought that it's Elijah comes from the Old Testament prophecy that before Messiah comes, then Elijah would appear and minister. Uh, with prophecy, uh, there's almost always a near and then a far fulfillment of those things and uh, in particular right um, we look to the book of revelation and we see two witnesses that stand and prophesy and bring judgment against the world and uh, it's commonly thought that moses and elijah are going to be those um, you know i'm pretty close to agreeing with that mentality uh, you know, it's, it's impossible to say, but, um, keep in mind, Jesus said John the Baptist was Elijah. Okay. Um, some people struggle with that, like reincarnation. What is it? No, not reincarnation. Um, what you're looking at, uh, is actually, if you recall Elijah and then his servant, Elisha, uh, as Elijah is about to be carried up into heaven that day, Elisha, in conversation 
with Elijah says that if you're going to be taken, I'm paraphrasing all of this, if you're going to be taken, what I want is a double portion of the spirit that is upon you. And interestingly enough, Elijah is physically taken up into heaven. And then Elijah, Elisha, if you remember, picks up his mantle and puts it upon himself. And when he comes back to the Jordan, he takes it off and strikes the water and the water parts. Okay. Um, a sign that the power that was on Elijah has indeed transferred to Elisha. And then we just start to see miracles come. And it is very interesting that if you total the number of miracles that happened and were recorded, attributed to Elijah's ministry, and then you count the number of miracles associated with Elisha's ministry, they are exactly double. So, so the spirit that was upon Elijah, which let's, let's be clear, uh, he was a man, Scripture even says, with like temptations unto ourselves, but uh, the Holy Spirit was upon him. And Elisha said, I want a double portion of that Holy Spirit. He doesn't want Elijah's spirit, right? Uh, that, that would be terrible. Uh, you, you would have the same anger and the same sinfulness and all of the same shortcomings as Elijah. You, you know, if you're being discipled, what you want is the Holy Spirit that is upon the person that is discipling you to be given to you in double portion. You want the Holy Spirit uh, upon yourself. So from there, John the Baptist, right, in his mother's womb, is greeted by Mary, and the, the Holy Spirit causes the child to leap inside the womb. And later we are told that from, meaning in his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. I mean, maybe he never even went through the terrible twos. You know what I'm saying? A, a child truly filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, you know, there's something to consider in that to the degree that Jesus says, if you can accept it, uh, John the Baptist was Elijah come in the spirit. Okay, so so this promise of the coming, I believe, partly fulfilled in John the Baptist because the Messiah came, Jesus. So Elijah must come and Jesus says, John is Elijah. And now we have the far fulfillment, which is still ahead of us. I believe uh, that probably, and, you know, I'll be watching from heaven, but probably uh, we're going to see that that same spirit is upon the witness that comes as Elijah and declares to the world, you know, spirit of Moses, spirit of Elijah. So we have the prophecy from the Old Testament that Elijah was going to come before Messiah. And that is in the uh, Jewish religious thinking, so much so that when you come to this moment, Herod, who is of Jewish descent, is saying, right, uh, this is Elijah. And, uh, and the people around him are saying, well, John the Baptist or Elijah or the prophet Moses, Deuteronomy in particular, said that the Lord had revealed to him that there would come a prophet like unto himself. And again, we know from the scripture that is, in fact, referring to Jesus, 
fire fulfillment, maybe the other witness, Revelation, the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, possibly there, um, and <clears throat> or like one of the prophets. So generic enough to just say, uh, this Jesus is like the prophets. So, um, you know, this comes up with the disciples. Uh, who do people say that I am? Oh, you know, John the Baptist, oh, Elijah, oh, uh, you know, the prophet that was going to come like Moses, uh, one of the prophets. Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, right? Flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but the Holy Spirit, uh, he says. So there are lots and lots of opinions always about spiritual matters. You know, you, you listen to the general public and they'll go, you know, Jesus uh, straight into Buddha, straight into Edward Case, straight into Nostradamus. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's all kind of prophecy, isn't it? Uh, no. No. Yeah, garbage and garbage, garbage mixed with the pure revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a bad idea. And yet that's how some people run their spirituality. You know, I had a big conflict years ago with a family I was trying to minister to, and it, I was just constantly seeing compromise. And then a big, big, big compromise, you know. Very, very involved. Very, very fervent about Christianity, the faith, ministry, but, but massive compromise. What is going on in this situation? And I finally discovered they weren't willing to accept it, but we're having a conversation one night, and they all, right, large Italian family, explained to me that their idolized saint in their life was their mother, who the matriarch used to make them all go to church and go to church herself, but she also dealt drugs off the back steps of the house. You know, because you have to. You got to make ends meet. I mean, come on, right? And so they grew up with the sense that this God-fearing woman, you know, oh, yeah, she also sells drugs, but that's no big deal. That's just to pay the bills. And so now I see the duplicity, you know. Yeah, I'm saying you, you need to move your sights up a little higher, <laughs> you know, something closer to Jesus, something less like the devil. Oh, they were so offended. So offended. I didn't say that about their mom being the devil, but they were so offended with the thought that I would not just sign off on your mom was awesome. <laughs> you know, I, I'm trying to point out, look, you know, to whatever degree mom was awesome in her faith, praise God. But you got to embrace the fact that mom was a profound sinner. She was the largest source of chemical destruction of their neighborhood. Right? She's getting people hooked. She's messing people up right out the back door. Doesn't use yourself, right? So messed up. So messed up. Uh, there's common opinion. Herod is a profound sinner. Had John the Baptist beheaded, and he's got a head full of that tabloid garbage. You know, he's he's this. He says this is this is the ghost of John the Baptist. <laughs> no, this is the Messiah. You know, do do a little research, Herod, right? They're cousins. It wasn't like John the Baptist 
was alive and well and you killed him and then suddenly Jesus was reincarnated, they were ministering at the same time. All it takes is a little, a lot of people don't want to even study at all. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a tremendous, they've got some weird concoction and if you come along and say, you know, that's what you think is messed up. It doesn't line up with the word of God or they get really offended. You know, like somehow they're, pet spiritual project must be accurate because they've bought into it wholeheartedly. You need to let the word of God dictate truth. Here, others said it's Elijah. Others said it's the prophet. Or like one of the prophets, boy, you're almost hitting a bunch of things here, but you're completely off. You're not, you're not, you're not nailing anything on the head. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He's been raised from the dead. Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Wow, the backstory there is gross. This is his niece, right? He's married his own niece, whom he stole from his brother. And I don't mean that she is his niece because she was previously married to his brother. She is literally half-blood niece to him and his brother. And, and, and he, at a drunken party on return home, forsook his own wife, lusted after his niece, stole her, coerced her away from his brother, took her away and married her. It's a, it's a horrendous family picture that we see here. Because John had said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So first person direct. He communicated directly with Herod and said to him, you're in sin. This is improper. Keep that in mind. The next time the Saab sisters want to tell you, oh, you shouldn't, you know, confront people and talk politics and get involved with that's that's another whole realm listen joe biden by name is promoting the murder of unborn children and it is incredibly wicked and god will judge him for it member of the catholic church Yada, yada, yada. Doesn't mean a blessed thing. It does not mean anything. Oh, well, this bishop and that pope said, and we didn't. Who cares? God said, right? There's a king on the throne. And life that is in a human being is life that came from him. He breathed life into Adam, and it has extended to every one of us. Life is sacred. Listen, I want to get something in your head if you're not aware of this. Right? Some people right now, Texas, God bless them. That's awesome. Right? Heartbeat bill, all of that stuff. Life begins at conception. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. Life begins before conception. Before Jeremiah was, the Lord knew him. Okay? Right? Cyrus... God named Cyrus as his servant 150 years before Cyrus was born. 
Okay, life does not begin. Life begins in God. And if you are killing off human beings wherever you do it, then you are killing the God-given life. This is why it is so wrong. God wants us to protect life and preserve life. And we say this, but have you dwelt on it to really understand um, you know, who here right now would like to uh, get on a plane with me and go <clears throat> to the international airport in Afghanistan, right? You want to you want to just know turban on, you know, jeans and T-shirt, me and plaid. Uh, you and I will just walk down the street and start looking for people that uh, the Taliban is holding hostage. You want you want to do that with me? Like nobody's raising their hand. Because it's that dangerous. Do you understand that it's more dangerous to be an unborn child in the womb in America than it is to do that? Far more dangerous. 1.65 million children killed in America annually through abortion. 1.65 million. That's crazy. This is, this isn't you know all these people act, it's it's being used as birth control. Oh, what about the woman who's raped? What about incest? Do you do you understand that we're talking about a a number that is so much smaller than a single percentile that it shouldn't should not be in the discussion at all? That number is so small that when it happens, right, so incredibly rarely, you could take each one of those cases to the medical community and to the judges and let them decide on a per-case basis. And there would be no strain on the medical system or the court system. That's how unthinkably low that number is. And they're presenting it to us like that's the norm. 1.65 million. That's crazy. That's crazy. Entire population of the state of Maine times two. Every single year. Massive studies have been done, you guys, about the financial ramifications of this. And, and the people who have been serious about the study have actually come to find that the reason Social Security is failing is because we've been killing off the work populace since 1973. They say, oh, no, that's, that's because they've been borrowing against, right? The, 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 the uh, group that's retiring now, they're, they're taking our money to pay them. Guess what? That's how the system was designed. There wasn't a bunch of money in the bank when they started the program and said, okay, well, now you people can start retiring and we'll start paying you out of these savings. They immediately, on the inception of the Social Security system, took the present working generation and started paying the people who were presently retiring. Right now, it's wicked top-heavy. Well, there's your main term. It's very top-heavy, right? Because you have a generation that was before us that, you know, the average family size, I don't know if you're aware of this, when they started the Social Security program was six children. The average because some of those families, many of those families had 12 and 15 children. 
and, and something was wrong with the family if they only had two or three. It's like, like, oh, like, sorry to hear that. Average families, four and six, you know. You got a massive workforce retiring. And this, this is why, right? Because you could give them a job and just say, no, for the rest of your life, you're going to take this nut and put it on this screw and put it in that box. Assembly line. And they would do it. They would get paid. No, now we don't have enough workers. They're acting like, oh, we need to do this with machines. The reason they have to do it with machines is because the demand is still there, and yet we don't have the workforce. Birth rate, right now, <clears throat> we are at 1.8. Every single family in America produces 1.8 children. To stay the same number of people, you have to have 2.1. Just to stay the same. You want the same number of Americans, you want 310 million Americans to stay 310 million Americans, then you've got to have 2.1 because the death rate is calculated into that. We've sunk to 1.8. Uh, no nation, how about this, no nation has ever recovered from a birth rate lower than 1.8. It continues to diminish and becomes nothing. 1.6 is impossible to recover from. You, you, you cannot, because by the time you reverse the process, and even if you were to increase back to 2.1, the death rate would take over and you would reach zero before you had accomplished the turnaround. 1.6 is impossible to reverse. And it's happened repeatedly throughout history. You say, well, those nations still exist. No, they really don't. Their ethnicity is gone. Immigration took over. And yes, people live in the same location, but they are not of the origin of the people who formed that location and nation. That's happening right now. Uh, Muslim immigration, those families have birth rates of 5.6. And they're immigrating right now 3 to 1. Right now, the current calculations are less, less than 15 years. Keep that in mind. Less than 15 years, this will be an Islamic nation. Uh, you see the problems going on in Afghanistan and people are acting like, oh no, that couldn't possibly happen. Okay. <clears throat> There's an interesting phrase I heard this week. Canada is 10 years left of us. Process that for a second. Okay. <clears throat> Canada's 10 years left of us. They already have Islamic court throughout their nation. We have three Islamic courts in this nation already. A whole communities being governed by Sharia law. You know, not their street law, but marriage, divorce, family, inheritance, all being governed by Sharia law. And they want it as law upon the streets. So the women will be in burqas and, you know, the hours of prayer for the Muslims will be honored by everyone in the society. You know who first started this? If it feels like I'm a, on a rant, I am. Uh, Henry Ford. Henry Ford hated Jews. He was an anti-Semite, and he purposely, how about this, you guys, he purposely, and this is like, think about when Ford began, he was going to the Middle East and importing strict Muslims to where? Dearborn, Michigan. Does that ring a bell for you? Right. 
yeah, hated Jews, wanted nothing to do with them, imported their enemies to work in his factories, established Muslim communities under control of Muslims, Dearborn, Michigan in particular. Here we are today. Seeds planted, roots taken hold, follow it all the way. Addressing things politically, in person, confronting that which is wrong and sinful is necessary. Necessary. Oh, it may cost you your head. It may cost you your job. It may, it may cost you. It may cost you. But oh, how great is your reward. Standing up for righteousness. John the Baptist said to Herod, it is improper for you to have that woman as your wife on half a dozen levels, bro. You know, bloodline and marriage and divorce and you're wrong. Grossly offended, verse 19, therefore Herod held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she, uh, I said Herod, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things. That little phrase right there, he did many things, is he often listened to John. So it's as though, seems like the scripture is actually revealing to us that Herod was like sneaking down to John's cell and having Bible studies. Right? He, he's frequently listening to John. John's in prison. And yet, how's he frequently listening to John? He's taking the time to and heard him gladly. Oh, 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 keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Right? He, he, you think about what's just, he feared John, knows he's just, knows he's holy, protects him, hears him frequently, and gladly accepts what John has to say and kills him because of lust. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Lust over his wife's daughter. So messed up. Who is right? His wife is his niece. His great niece, he's so filled with sexual arousal that he's willing to kill John. So, so don't don't think like, you know, oh, I, I fear uh, certain teachers. I, I know that they're right. I know that they're holy, and, and I, I would protect them, and, and I, I like to listen to them. And boy, don't I, I just, I, I take in their teachings. I really enjoy it, and yet lust dominates my heart. And, and I will compromise at every level over just this sinful desire that I have. That's, that's where Herod is at. Let's see how it unfolds. Then an opportune day came for Herod on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee, the movers and the shakers. He surrounds himself with the elite people, you know, the important people. When 
Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced. And the word pleased and pleased Herod, that's sexual pleasure. She's doing some kind of dance that is extraordinarily provocative. It isn't the natural sense of she's an attractive young woman who's dancing. It's the idea of her dance is designed for sexual arousal. So she comes in, pleased Herod and those who sat with him. I can't even, this just messes my mind up. There's a little girl that these guys are all infatuated with. This is, it's some sick, twisted stuff. It really is. So he's so aroused by this. Again, this is why children under 12, we arrange for them to have their own church services. Because the scripture touches on subjects that are beyond 12 years old. Okay, maybe even beyond 13 years old. But it's at least enough to where we try to curb how we put it together and you as parents and relatives can go home and have mature conversations with these developing young adults. Right? The, the world is an insidious place and... We do need to discuss these subjects. You know, you know, sometimes people, you know, have, have been to churches where, oh, well, we have Sunday school in the morning, and then immediately following that, the whole family comes together, and we have the congregation. Why don't you do that? Well, we run a different program. We have a church service that covers the whole Bible. And sometimes you run into subjects that literally are incestuous. And they have to be discussed openly, right? Our culture is steeped in this garbage, is it not? This is everywhere around us. And it's important for those who sit in church to hear these subject matters. You know, I've recently had conversation with an individual that was unaware that the Bible had much to say about sexuality and in particular dating. And I'm saying, well, clearly you haven't spent much time in the scripture because it has an exhaustive amount to say about all of these subjects. So here, this man and the men around them, aroused by this young woman, he sat Please, uh, Herod, and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, what are you, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Listen, it's not even entirely within his authority to promise that. The man is overextending himself on every level based upon sexual arousal. Listen, <clears throat> easy to shake our heads at it, and yet it's one of the most common failures of human beings. The most base of instincts. How many men and women have destroyed their lives? Destroyed their lives with this behavior. 
as soon as having participated in it, filled with regret and remorse and wishing that they could correct the circumstances. Led straight into the trap, you can almost hear the jaws clanking shut and yet still stick your neck out. Still put yourself in the precarious position. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. This whole family is shrewd, okay? Polluted, corrupt, okay? If you're an innocent little kid and somebody says to you, I really like the task you're doing. If you'll complete that, I'll give you anything you want. What would you like? You know, well, I don't know, race car, um, you know, something childish. This young girl is shrewd enough to say, I need counsel. There, there's a big opportunity here. And in a sinful way, she goes. You can see the corruption in the whole family right here. You know, the, 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 the stepdad, the mom, the daughter, everybody is just corrupt. Ask for the head of John the Baptist. Listen, if you're a normal kid, that's going to freak you out. You are not going to want the head of John the Baptist. Right? What? You know? What in the world are you talking about? Instead, here, and, and I mean, I say keep saying, she's a young woman, okay? So she's a little older, but she's a young woman, and yet she's completely geared into this whole political, corrupt, sinful mindset. She knows what she's doing. Immediately, she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want, to, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter, you have to understand the calculation. It's revealed in the verses that follow. The king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Rewind this a little bit. Just go back a couple sentences, and I think... Mom is saying, we want the head of John the Baptist on a platter immediately. You have to go in there right now and ask him. He's made oath-filled promises in the presence of nobility who are aware that John has confronted me and my husband. I want you to go, don't waste no time. Go right back in there right now, right? She is the one that comes back in. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once, right? So he can't even delay, right? How would you give me a head of that? Well, you know, next week we'll get around to that ex execution. He can't delay. He's promised up to half the kingdom. You have to understand how Herod's lust has set him up. 
You've got to understand that. And, and you've, got to, you've got to take it to heart and learn from it. If you don't have any place that you can apply it to your own life, you can use this as a tool and help others. Okay? There's a man who struggled with lust that attended this church years ago. And I became aware of that. And I confronted him with it and conversations with him and the wife. And I said, you're, gonna, you're going to destroy your life with this. You're going to destroy your family. You're going to destroy your career. You're going to destroy everything you know and love, everything you appreciate with this. His problem was that he was a computer technician. And I said to him, you need a different job. Somebody else, it might not be as big of a deal. For you, you need a different job because you're being set up. Satan is baiting a trap for you and he's going to destroy you with this. You need to get out of these circumstances. You, you need to get rid of your smartphone. You need to get rid of your computers. You need to get out of the computer industry. You need a different job. You need a different life. No, not going to do it. Two or three more confrontations. I'm more insistent, so strong in my aggression over this issue that he leaves this church. Offended with me. He's protecting his flesh. And he leaves. And sure enough, I get the phone call, and he's been busted, and he's been engaged in sexual sin that's horrific, and it's public knowledge now, and the police are involved, and they're searching his computer, and he goes through divorce, and he loses his career. And now he has to be monitored constantly. And everything's gone. The world just collapses in ashes around him. Right? We talked about it this morning. Jesus saying, if your eye causes you to sin or your hand causes you to sin, it would be better for you to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. Then you enter hell whole. That's significant and important. Eternity is at stake. Jesus does not want to have a church full of mangled and maimed and crippled Christians. But he does want us to stare unflinchingly at sin and recognize the degree to which we need to attack it and address it and to cut off and gouge out whatever needs to go in order that we would have eternal life. It's not a drastic thing for a man to change his career if he has an eternity in the presence of God in the end, right? When Jesus says, what would it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? That's a serious question. Herod is a bumbling idiot who is continuously being manipulated until he has accomplished the very will of Satan himself. 
It's a horrific explanation. Immediately she came in haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry yet because of the oath and because of those who sat with him. He did not want to refuse. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. See, the scripture continuously confirms how young she is. The girl, the girl, the girl. She's a young lady, but she's a girl. She gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Sometimes you sort of wish that the scripture contained the entirety of a story. We get this side of it. History actually records the rest of this story for us, and it's pretty remarkable. Pulpit commentary collected the pieces and put it together this way. The taking up of the corpse by the disciples would seem to intimate that it lay uncared for and unburied until the disciples showed their respect for it. Josephus says that after the beheading, the mutilated remains were cast out of the prison and left neglected, thrown into a trash heap. God's judgments at length found out Herod, for not long after this, he was defeated by Aretas in a great battle and put to a deserving flight. Herodias herself and Herod were banished by a decree from the Roman Senate to the region of Lyons around France, where they both perished miserably. Okay? And there are some descriptions of that, but their deaths were hideous and they were impoverished and things were as unspeakable. So shortly after that, that all starts to collapse and they're driven out and exiled and die in an absolutely, both of them die in an absolutely horrible state. Nikiphorus relates that Salome, the daughter of Herodias, died by a remarkable visitation. She fell through some treacherous ice over which she was passing and falling through it in such a manner that her, her head was caught while the rest of her body sank into the fast-moving water. And thus it came to pass that in her efforts to save herself, her head was nearly severed by the sharp edges of the broken ice. You reap what you sow. So interesting. You read something like that and you think, like, is God just? God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, you shall reap. That's a heavy thing to consider in the prospect. So we've got uh, just a few more minutes, and I know that's sort of a 
big shift of gears, but let's go to verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Shouldn't think of a, a place of desolation. It's the idea of unoccupied. You guys have had a strong go of it in ministry and you're exhausted and we need to rest. It doesn't come about, but understand Jesus' desire for them, right? Jesus himself understands the need for rest and he's imploring it upon those who serve him. We sometimes get the mentality that if I'm just paper thin, exhausted all the time, then somehow that's the will of the Lord. <laughs> um, keep in mind that when God uh, created all things upon completion, he himself rested and everybody goes, oh, okay, yeah, amen, right, Sabbath. Well, consider this, I've pointed it out many times before, Adam was created on the sixth day. And on the seventh day, God rested. So Adam's first day, his first complete day of existence was in rest. In rest. The Jews say that when the sun sets, that's the beginning of the next day. So they go to bed to start their day. They start their day in rest. Start your days in rest. Go to bed and rest. And get up and get in the word and rest. And rest. Right? America runs on caffeine. Not the kingdom of God. You know, have a coffee. But understand, God wants you to be at rest. God wants you to be at peace. Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while, for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. That'll thin the crowd, right? Sorry, only so many seats. We love you all, but we're crossing the lake right now. If you'd like to join us, You'll need to swim. Jesus does this, right? You want to follow me? Well, I'm going to the top of this mountain. <laughs> Thin the crowd just right away. You know, he, he does this. Doesn't always work out. The multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. So much for the plan to rest. Right? Notice that Jesus doesn't flip his lid. I came here to rest, and you people, and I, just, you know, that old saying, right? Ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. You know, I just had some think that way, and that's just not how it is. It's not how it is. We're servants, and we're shepherds, and we minister, and we care for people, right? Jesus, having compassion upon them, we hear that repeatedly stated. Jesus' heart is compassionate towards the people. They come from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. 
And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Notice, he once again starts with teaching. He doesn't say, oh, let's, let's feed the crowd. They look hungry. Oh, let's heal the people. Oh, let's cast some demons out. The crowd, a new crowd, mostly a new crowd has gathered. Word has spread. They've run. They arrive where he is, and he goes to teaching. Now, the miracles and everything else follows. It happens subsequent to the teaching. Teaching is the primary motivation in Jesus' ministry always. Always. Right? Sheep without a shepherd, very, very dangerous. To the sheep. To the sheep. This culture, the primary um, financial gain for the shepherd is the wool. Okay, uh, the, the milk and the cheese, uh, profitable, beneficial, they come continuously, right? You like feta, you know, uh, goat and sheep cheese. Okay, so, so there are continuous benefits, but it's the wool that is the prime value of these things. When they get to the place where you're like, oh, look at the money. That one's loaded right down, and that one, that's when they are the most vulnerable. That, that is where death occurs, easily. The casting is one of, that's uh, the term the shepherds use, and casting is the most common form of death when they're at that phase. They get flipped upside down, right? Get in, get, they, they walk right down into the stream, wool goes, sucks all the water right up. They walk out, whoa, they're top heavy, boom, they flip right over. They can't, they're upside down, they can't right themselves. And they will die right there. No shepherd, um, there's going to be a lot of death. A lot of death in the whole process. Apply that to the church however you want to. The most valuable people to the ministry are the most vulnerable people to the ministry need to be shepherded, need to be need to be set aright, need to be put back on their feet, need to be guided, need to be fed. Right. Oh, you're ramming this stuff down my throat. You know, that's how they put medicine down the throat of a sheep. You know, understand that. They ram it down their throat. They used to do it with soft stick. They eventually developed a tube, and they would put the medicine in the tube, load it right up, and they would stand over the sheep's shoulders, hold their neck, rear their head right back, put the tube down their throat. Somebody else blow it right down their throat, hold their muzzle and their nose shut, feel their throat until they had swallowed three times, and then let them go. They've taken it all the way in. Forcibly applying the word of God is necessary sometimes. Not for you, for me. God has to force it into my life sometimes. Today they actually use, you've seen uh, those jugs they wear on their shoulders and they pump up and like spray with that. The ones that the shepherds use have an instant discharge. It doesn't spray gently. It goes poop and dis dispenses it all at once. So they... Pump that thing up, stand over their shoulders, rear their head back, put the tube right down their throat, and go, and then hold the muzzle 
and the nose shut till they've swallowed three times, then let them go. If you don't hold it, apparently what the shepherd told me is if you don't hold it and make them swallow, if you just shoot it down their throat and let them go, they'll spew it out all over the ground, vomit and get rid of it. Don't want any of that. Ramming it down my throat. Yeah, I've needed it rammed down my throat plenty of times. Because I'm dumb, sheep. I get myself into stupid places. I get myself flipped upside down. You know? I see the pigs wallowing around in the mud. I say, hey, that looks cool. Go over and join the pigs and make a mess. Hate it. Start squealing and screaming. And my master's got to come over and reach in with his hook and yank me out by my neck and put me where I belong and clean me off. Gracious shepherd, Jesus sees the crowd and says, oh man, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Dangerous, vulnerable. This is terrible. So he began to teach them, saying many, teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, long Bible study, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, an unoccupied place. And already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. They're going to starve out here. You need, it's already past dinner time. If we send them right now, they're going to arrive at the drive-thru starved. Send them now. It's already too late. He answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Eight months of a working man's wages. Think of that nice, solid construction job you had where the paycheck was substantial and the hours were good. Eight months of full-time employment like that. We, we, that wouldn't even feed everybody. Yeah, we would go spend eight months wages. We, we wouldn't even have enough to feed these people. There's a massive crowd present here. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. They found out, they said, five loaves, two fish. Okay, loaves, English muffins, fish, large sardines. This is not, we have these two salmon <laughs> and these six foot long loaves. Okay, now most of us know the Sunday school story, right? These five loaves and two fish belong to a little kid. I wonder who had the conversation with the little kid and convinced him to give up his lunch. You know what I'm saying? Who was that? Judas? <laughs> right? Probably not Peter. Probably not Andrew. Probably not Philip. There are some others, maybe. My suspicion is Judas was like, hey, kid. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
mom packed you a pretty nice lunch there. I, I don't know who did it. But at what point do you say to Jesus, I just stole five loaves and two fish from this little kid. Could we use those? This doesn't belong to them. This food does not belong to them. Maybe the child is, look, if you're starved out of your ever-loving mind and there's a little child, I don't know what kind of creep you are, right? I think you're pretty nice. But if you look over and there's a kid there with his Lunchable and his juice box, are you thinking, maybe that kid will split that with me? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't, it's really weird. You know, if you think I'm making too much of it, you go home and meditate upon it. This is, this is a strange thing that happens right here. We have five loaves and two fish. No, you don't. No, Jimmy has five loaves and two fish. You know, Jimmy's got five English muffins and two sardines. You don't have anything. How did this suddenly become? Have you been with people that are like that? For what belongs to you that you have worked so hard for, they suddenly claim as ours? You know, it's not yours. This, there's a lot to this story that's like, wow, that's... I wonder if they're going to actually have, you know, feeding 5,000 101 class when we get to heaven. I'd, I'd like to know all of the little nuance that's contained right here. You, you, need, you need food that is bigger in quantity than eight months of hard-earned wages is capable of delivering, and, and you want to offer up some other kid's lunch. Really weird. Really weird. Five loaves, two fish. He looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves. We're getting the very condensed version by Peter and, and John Mark as they are uh, delivering this to us here in Mark chapter 6. He looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples, and set before them the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments of the fish. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Men, and, and, and the automatic calculation is in the mind of the Jews. You say, how big was the crowd? And somebody says, about 5,000 men. You automatically go 15,000 people. Because there are women and children there also. This is a massive crowd of people. This is 5,000 would be enough, right? There, there's a throng of people here in this moment. Um, I, I wonder if there was a profound embarrassment for each of them, right? Look, if I've stolen your lunch and I'm about to eat it and I get busted by Jesus who says, why don't we share that with everybody? And I act like, what in the world? You know, because even if I've stolen some little kid's lunch and I'm over in the corner about to eat it, sneaking myself and Jesus says I want you to share that with everybody in this room right now 
five English muffins and two sardines divided amongst us, I'm going to be hungry at the end. So I stole the kid's lunch, and I was about to eat, and I got busted by Jesus, and now he's going to distribute it to everybody. And not only does he feed everybody, but now I realize I've got a basket that's full of fragments. And so doesn't Peter, and so doesn't James, and so doesn't John, and so doesn't Judas, and so doesn't Phil. Everybody's got a basket. All, all, all of my selfish sinfulness that led me to coerce and manipulate a kid out of his lunch is now slapping me in the face as I say thank you to one more person and take the fragments and put it in my basket. God is really gracious, you guys, with us. As we run our mouths and we complain and we face our little tiny situation and we act like, well, God can't possibly rescue me from this horrendous flat tire, you know. <laughs> and then somebody, you know, gives you the keys to a whole car. It'll shut your mouth when you realize how small and petty you are and how big God is when he takes care of you and sees you through the circumstances. This feeding of the 5,000, the lessons are thick. If you have uh, failed and found yourself in those positions where you're embarrassed, even if no one else recognizes it, you're recognizing your own petty, weak, small, sniveling condition, right? Remember Peter, who denied even knowing Jesus three times. And Jesus restores him there in John chapter 21. And he actually goes through the process of asking him three times. Peter was asked three times, you know Jesus? I don't know the guy, you know. Are you sure you don't? You're Galilean. You got the same accent as him. I swear I don't know him. You know, a little girl is saying you are one of them. I know with a confidence that you are. And Peter says something to the nature of, may God strike me dead if I know the man. It says that he cursed, meaning he pronounced a curse upon himself and disavowed knowing Jesus. And, and the scripture tells us that as those words were coming out of his mouth at that moment, Jesus was brought out into the courtyard and they made eye contact with one another. That'll run you right through. And I've been there. I've been right in the midst of my own level of betrayal and made eye contact with Jesus and been humiliated in the moment and been barely able to pick my head up later. And the Lord has carefully brought me through the process of restoration. Right? John 21, Peter swims ashore. Jesus is making breakfast. Peter, how it breaks down is, do you love me unconditionally? 
And Peter says, well, you know we're friends. <laughs> Imagine if that were you and I. <laughs> and you said to me, Will, do you love me unconditionally? Will, are we best friends? And I said, well, I mean, we're, we're sort of friends. <laughs> right? Peter shies right away. Then feed my sheep. Asked him the second time, Peter, hey, are, are we, do you, do you love me unconditionally? Peter's already said, well, we're friends. He has to answer a second time, well, I mean, we're friends. Right? Because before the instance, he said, I will die at your side. Everyone else will betray you, and I will die at your side. Listen, take Peter at his word, right? Because he pulled that sword out. And he started swinging. And Jesus said, stop that. Behind the scenes, the whole picture is, that's not how you're going to die for me. Historically, Peter, what's going to happen is, they're going to kill your wife in front of your eyes by crucifying her naked on a cross. And then they're going to kill you by hanging you upside down. See, we'd love to go out in a blaze of glory. Right? Our pride. Let me dive in front of the bullets. <laughs> no, you're going to die by slowly dying to yourself every single day and serving your spouse and your children and your church. Till you're an old man and you just lay down and breathe your last. That's how you're going. That does not sound glamorous. <laughs> and Christ said, that's going to be the greatest testimony the world can see from you. You being selfless for the rest of your days. Do you love me unconditionally? Well, we're friends. Feed my sheep. Asks him the third time, and this is what stung Peter, and the scripture records that it stung Peter. He says, hey, Pete, are we actually friends? Do you love me unconditionally? Well, we're friends. Do you love me unconditionally? Well, we're friends. Hey, Peter, are we actually friends? And Peter was heartbroken, it says, and what he answered Jesus was, Lord, you know all things. Meaning, I guess I don't really know. I said with an absolute conviction and confidence just days ago, I will die at your side. And right now that you're confronting me, I couldn't even hold up under the pressure of a little girl insisting that I was one of your followers. So I guess I don't even really know myself. Hear this, hear the last point in this. Then Jesus said, then feed my sheep. He didn't say, you're right, Pete, you are a loser, and that's why I don't want you in my crowd. You thought you were awesome, and you made bold claims, and now it's been proven out that you're a schmuck, so get lost. He says, you're right, I do know all things. And that's why I want you to feed my sheep. 
because you've been humbled in the process. Oh, the grace of God. Oh, the grace of God. We're to be these ministers, and Peter encouraged us later. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he said, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I encourage, I explain to you, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not for whatever way it's going to benefit you. Eagerly. Why? Just to serve your master. Just so that you can be obedient. Not, not for how it benefits you. Not so that people can look on and go, oh, have you noticed? Oh, wow. Or the paycheck or any of that. Just go serve. Why? Because Jesus Christ deserves our service. He is full well, well deserving of us serving him. Amen? Amen. So, a few lessons for us there. We'll pick up at uh, verse 45. Um a fair amount. Got about 10 verses left in the chapter. So we'll pick up at 45 next week. Will you stand and pray with me?